This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time for Katie Porter, the new member of Congress who flipped one of those longtime Republican districts in California's Orange County in 2018. She had been a law professor at UC Irvine, where I'm also on the faculty, and she was a student of Elizabeth Warren. She's an expert on banking who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. She's also been a key supporter of legislation to reduce the influence of dark money in politics. And she's a vocal supporter of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. In a conversation at a Nation magazine event, our publisher and editorial director, Katrina Vandenhoevel, asked Katie Porter what her top priorities were after January 20th, when Joe Biden replaces Trump. I believe we will win. I believe we will win the Senate, by the way. And I think we will expand our House majority, not just in numbers, but in the quality of the people in the House, which I'm really excited about. But repairing the trust of the American people in government is hard. And I think a lot about this from what I saw in the foreclosure crisis. When people were losing their homes, when their market fell apart, when there was unemployment, when the global economy blew up, the people who called me when I was working for the Attorney General as the California Monitor didn't blame Democrats, they didn't blame Republicans, they blamed government, period, government. And that's a moment where I think we are at risk of being with COVID. So do I think the president has horribly mismanaged the pandemic and, and cost Americans lives, literally killed people? Yes, I do. And I think Democrats in the House are working really hard to try to get help, to try to do right, to try to provide critical programs, food assistance, um, housing, all of these things. But at the end of the day, when people are scared, when the economy is at risk, when people are unemployed, when they're worried about opportunity for their kids, when they're worried about how they're going to be able to make ends meet, that fear translates into anger at government. When people needed help, their government wasn't there for them. And that's the legacy that Donald Trump and his administration is leaving us with. And so I think first and foremost, we have to think about how do we repair that. Um, and so I think a lot of it, it's going to be actually in building an administration um, that is, is focused on um, putting quality people into jobs and not just the cabinet jobs. It's really fun to get out and think about who's going to be secretary of this or who's going to be secretary of that. But let me tell you who runs this country. It's the deputy undersecretary, five people deep in the Department of Justice. So just to give you one example, I took bankruptcy with Elizabeth Warren. The person who runs the bankruptcy system, they're not on your radar. You don't know who they are. But boy, do they change the system in ways that can either be helpful or hurtful for people who've gotten cancer and lost their jobs and couldn't work and, and need help in dealing with debt. So... I think one of our top priorities has to be rebuilding our agencies and the trust in our agencies, including things like protecting and strengthening the inspector general system, but making appointments all the way up and down, not just the top few, all the way up and down. And I think, by the way, that is a fair critique of something that President Obama wasn't as strong at mm -hmm. as he might have been. Um, he put in people at the top, but left a lot of these people. And it was part of his, let me try to you know, build a bipartisan um, coalition. 
but if you're still in the Trump administration today and, and you're a political appointee or, or you have any amount of power and you haven't spoken up or, or spoken out, I really question whether you're the kind of leader that's going to be able to solve the problems that we face today. So I think focusing on rebuilding that administrative state is really important. Um, the other thing I think is that we do need to be willing to tackle special interest in politics. Um, and the, you know, we've seen so much change, for example, with the NRA from even four or six years ago. It's hard to remember that six or eight years ago, a lot of Democrats took NRA money, not one or two who are now on their way out, but a lot. But there are still powerful special influences. Um, in the debate that we had over prescription drug pricing, the number of people who, who were nervous about voting for a bill that literally just let Medicare negotiate drug prices. What could be more capitalistic than letting us negotiate for the price of something? Um, and yet there were people who were worried about it. And so I think the movement to not take corporate PAC money um, in Congress, the fact that there are now 60 plus people who don't take corporate PAC money. And again, two, four years ago, there were two or four people. That is a huge trend and it is reshaping who gets heard in Congress, what bills move, how legislation gets written, but there is a lot more work to do to get those people um, in. And Katie Porter was asked about student loan debt. The crisis of student loan debt is not just a crisis of those who have student loan debt. It is an overall crisis for our economy. So if you never had debt, good for you. If you went to college back when it cost $50 or whatever, these numbers that just seem impossible to me, good for you. If your parents or grandparents were able to pay or you got a scholarship, great. But the student loan debt overhang is holding back our entire economy. It is both a microeconomic household financial problem, but also a structural macroeconomic problem. And there are some wonderful studies by progressive economists um, showing that if we would lift that student loan debt burden and substantially relieve that student loan debt burden, our entire economy would be stronger, would be more stable, and would have more, more engine, more potential for innovation. Um, student loan debt is also not a young person's problem. And I think, you know, I watched with sort of the Bernie campaign and some people I know, including the, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Eater is a Bernie voter. Well, he wasn't a voter, ah. but he was a Bernie fan. Um, at one point in my house, I had Bernie fan, a Kamala fan, a Booker fan, and I was the Warren co-chair. So it was a real hot mess at the dinner table, let me tell you. I was living the dream every night at dinner. Um, but I think one of the things that is important in sort of young people being attracted to Bernie because of his willingness to take on student loan debt and actually do something about it, not just pander, was actually student loan debt is a huge problem for middle age and older people. Um, you know, I heard Elizabeth Warren say last night, you know, people are having to pay for 20 years. Yeah. And I thought to myself, Elizabeth, 20, 30, 30, 40. And the fastest growing group of bankruptcy filers in this country is people 70 years and older. And so I think there's an overarching problem of people carrying debt later into life that I'm really interested in that's connected to that student loan problem. But people who are now trying to retire with 10 or 15 years left on a mortgage, 
we didn't we didn't actuarially build retirement systems that way. And so that's something that I think about all the time. So yes, I think we should forgive student loans, um, but I think there's no, we, we cannot do that without at the same time having a plan for how we're gonna tackle reducing the cost of college going forward. It just doesn't make sense to solve the past and set us up for the same problem again in the future. And so I, I think one of the things I'm really interested in is we've seen a number of plans for how to um, how to reduce and you know forgive student loan debt, the federal government could do that. It's pretty, it's politically really challenging, but it's it's policy wise pretty straightforward. How to bring down the costs of college um, is actually a more challenging problem. Yes, part of the answer is more federal and state funding, but part of it is also that college costs a lot more, and so states are paying the same proportion of college costs that they used to. It's just that the other half is so many more dollars. And that's something that we really need to have a conversation about and about the role of the federal government in doing that. So, you know, my goal is to have college that, um, you know, you could work in the summer and earn enough to pay at least your tuition, if not your room and board. That was true for Senator Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't true for me. It wasn't even close to true for me. When my children found out how much college costs, they told me that they didn't want to go because they don't want to do that to me, mom. So that is a system that is deeply broken and that is, that is inhibiting a whole generation of children's ambitions and potential. And so I'm, I'm really interested in not just solving the past overhang, which I think is a macroeconomic structural issue for our economy, but also in what these high costs of education are doing to, to shaping opportunity for young people, particularly in ways that affect people of color um, and people from lower income communities and people from rural areas, people with less advantage. Katie Porter was also asked about vote by mail and how to defend it from Trump's attacks. Uh, with regard to the post office, we need to think about the post office and talk about the post office for what it is, which is a civic treasure. It is part of our government. It is part of our institution. Um, we need to treasure it. And so we need to fund it and we need to protect it from structural um, harms that, that allow it, that have, that have put it where it is today. So many people don't know the last several years ago, there was a law passed that requires the post office to fully pre-fund its pension, 100% fully pre-fund its pension. That's not something that any business in this country could possibly do. That's not something that we ask any other part of government to do. So we're putting those kind of barriers on the post office and then they say, well, look, you're failing. We're hampering them from modernizing, from offering more services to the community, postal banking, um, being able to sell products that people need. Um, and then we're pointing at them and saying, you're failing. So I'm a huge champion for the post office. I think it's an incredibly important institution. I think about all of the seniors right now who are relying on the post office to get medicine um, and other people who are not able to leave their homes to get medicine. I think about the role the post office put, has long played in serving the community of people with disabilities. It is such an important institution. So we have to fund it. We have to fight Trump's attacks on it. Um, the oversight committee is gearing up to have a hearing um, looking at what Trump is doing um, and Trump's appointee as postmaster general is doing to the post office. But to be clear, first and foremost, if you, like me, want to save the post office, get out there and vote for Biden-Harris and make sure everybody you know can and does. 
we have to try to help the post office hang on for the next 84 days. And when we win the White House and the Senate and the House, then we can begin the structural reform to rebuild the post office and to, and to allow it to recreate itself for the next several generations of Americans. With regard to mail-in balloting, I mean, this whole dynamic over absentee versus mail-in and the, the language confusion, um, one of the things that, that I'm a big fan of is making sure that we're pushing for um, secretaries of state and county registrar of voters to be adapting and using technology to combat some of these risks and perceptions. Um, and so in Orange County, for example, you can track your ballot. You can see that it was mailed to you. You can see that it was received. You can see that it was opened. You can see that it was either counted or not counted. If it was not counted, you can see the reason and you have the opportunity to contact the registrar and try to fix that. That is the kind of transparency that we ought to be bringing to this entire entire voting process. And so I think the American public, by the way, strongly supports vote by mail. Um, Trump is trying to sow disinformation, um, but I think we just need to keep pushing back at it. Um, and, and I think we also as progressives, I just want to caution, need to be realistic about what we can accomplish with vote by mail, particularly in this cycle. Vote by mail, every American, especially in this pandemic, but I think in general, every American should have the right to vote by mail, should be able to vote whether they can't get out of work or they can't leave their house, whether they're home with kids, whether I mean, something like 30% of polling places today are not handicap accessible, holding back people with disabilities from being able to exercise their right to vote. So I firm believer that everybody should get a mail ballot. But historically in the last couple of years, when you look at who chooses to vote by mail, that coalition is older, whiter, and more conservative. And I can tell you sitting here in Orange County, that's not my winning coalition to keep this seat. So we have to recognize that there's significant proportion of Americans who still want to go in person to vote. They don't, they don't trust a mail-in ballot. They don't believe it will be counted. Um, and giving them electronic verification and a system to track their ballot can help address some of those concerns over time. That's Katie Porter in conversation with Katrina Vandenhoogel for The Nation. You can watch or listen to their full conversation at thenation.com slash events. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.